Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. If there's one rule of podcasting, it's never release an episode on a Saturday. Saturday's not a podcast day. Don't record one. Don't release one on a Saturday. Well... Here we are, it's Saturday, <laughs> and I promised a second live episode from York. People have been saying, well, come on, where is it? Well, here it is. Uh, I'm not commentating this afternoon. It's been a very busy week, a lot of long matches. Uh, great matches. Everyone's ill at the tournament, that's the other thing. All the pundits, everyone, the TV crews, production teams, staff at the tournament, everyone's ill. The winter sort of virus bug, whatever it is, has gone round, and... Uh, yeah, so that's what's happening. But the tournament is brilliant. And uh, we had uh, great excitement uh, just last night. The biggest ever points tally in a frame uh, between uh, Mark Williams and Ding Junhui. A lot of close finishes. And as I record this, we have semi-finals comprising Ronnie O'Sullivan against Hussain Bafai and Judd Trump against Ding Junhui. Now, by the time you listen to this, the first one will be over. Um, and we'll be looking forward to the final. But anyway, I said I'd be back, and I am. And that's... <laughs> That's about uh, as much as I can say about uh, why this episode exists. It won't be a long one, but uh, we've got some emails to catch up on that we haven't dealt with already. So let's dive in. Now, of course, there was some sent after the Champion of Champions, which seems a long time ago now. Um, in reality, it's a couple of weeks, but a lot's happened since then. Of course, Mark Allen had a, a stunning win over Judd Trump 10-3. Kelly Barker writes, he says, I just thought I'd email in to say what an enjoyable week, as always, the Champion Champions was. Mark Allen was back near his best form and thoroughly deserved the title. Not many players... Will beat Judd like that this season. Judd looked especially good leading up to the final, though, and some of his hot shots will be remembered for many a year. It all bodes well for a cracking UK championship ahead. I wouldn't bet against either Judd or Mark lifting the title in York. Which is a bit unfair to to to, to read that bit out because Kelly, she said this obviously after the final. This is a couple of weeks ago. Judd is still going though, so you know, uh, half right. She says, a word to you on the previous week and a tremendous international championship in China. Getting these events back on the calendar has been the most pleasing thing for me this season. And credit to Zhang Ander for the way he won it. It's always good to see a new winner. And who's to say what he'd go on to do now? Well, of course, he was uh, quarterfinals in York this week as well. She says, finally, thanks, Dave, and all the ITV team for making those events different class these days. I feel lucky to be a snooker fan at a time where there's so much to watch, morning, noon and night, on one channel or another. Well, thank you, Kelly. Yeah, it's, uh, we are kind of sport at the moment, and uh, hopefully, I'm sure you are enjoying the UK Championship. It kind of goes without saying, really, but uh, thank you for that. And the Champion of Champions, as well, from Callum Law. Now, of course, uh, I, I did. I knew that uh, when I asked for the UK Championship memories, I'd missed a few out. And Callum, actually, in this email, has uh, has got some. So we'll come to that shortly. But uh, I'll, I'll just on what he says after the uh, Champion of Champions. He said it's been a funny season for me. I haven't managed to watch nearly as much snooker as I would normally due to work and personal commitments. However, I saw plenty of the champion of champions and thoroughly enjoyed it. From the outset to conclusion, 
I thought Mark Allen was excellent. I'm not sure if I'm alone in thinking this, but is Mark slightly underrated in some quarters? He's been a top 16 player for many years now, scores very heavily. The only trophy he's really missing from his CV is the World Championship. Well, I suppose just on that, uh, Callum, I suppose that's the thing, really. Uh, if he won the World Championship, it would be, you couldn't really, you know, say anything about him. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure he is underrated. I suppose he's one of those players, though, when the tournament starts, he's not necessarily, you know, in the first few in the betting, but he's kind of always there as a threat. And obviously in the last year or so, he's been very much a threat. Uh, Callum says, the biggest compliment I think I could pay, Mark, is that at his best, I'd say he's capable of winning any tournament, beating anyone who's ever picked up a queue. Now then, Callum also says, you asked for UK Championship memories, I've picked out a few from when I first started watching snooker. So 2008 final, Sean Murphy, Marco Fu. Being 10 years old at the time and with my final, and with the final session starting at 8pm on Sunday, a school night, I only got to watch an hour or so of the last session live, but my dad taped the rest for me and I watched the drama unfold over the next two nights after avoiding the result. Well, those are the days, weren't they? You could have, <laughs> you could have avoided the result, I suppose, just about pre-social media. You could avoid the result for two days. It's pretty incredible. Uh, 2009 semi-final, John Higgins, Ronnie O'Sullivan. John looked to be cantering to victory at 8-2 up. Ronnie produced an amazing comeback to 8-all before a granite final frame from John to win it. Was absolutely transfixed watching it and remains one of the best matches I've seen. And finally, 2010 final, John Higgins, Mark Williams. Just epic stuff and in some ways perhaps John's best tournament win coming back from 9-5 down to win and also following on from everything earlier that year. Another final where I take the conclusion and watched it the next day. So, uh, again, it seems uh, in those days you could do that. He says, I'm really looking forward to the UK Championship. Every snooker fan has great memories of it. Uh, and he says, did you see the stuff on social media about Ray Ridden making a century last week? What a player and what a snooker man. Well, yes, indeed, he made one at the age of 91 on, a, on what we were told was a tough table. So that gives hope to everybody. Now, Adrian writes, he says, first of all, I wanted to say I discovered your podcast during lockdown and went back and listened to every one. So thank you for the, taking the time to give your insight and opinions on the game for the avid snooker fan. Well, thank you, Adrian. If you've listened to every one, then uh, you deserve some sort of MBE or something. But um, that's very good of you. He says, I've never emailed before, but the question last week about favourite bits of commentary, I had to give mine. During the 2012 World Championship, when Stephen Hendry made the 147 against Stuart Bingham, John Virgo, with that perfect cadence and excitement, says, well done, Stephen, you've done the game proud. It was just a magical moment with the former great champion doing what he does best. And for me, it was one of the last great, his last great moments in snooker. I watched that break all the time. And for me, it's just as good as Ronnie's fastest 147 15 years previously. And on the same subject, commentary lines, Phil Spivey. Uh, he says, uh, the subject of memorable commentary lines is brought up. One of my favourites is Ted Lowe in 1985. After Dennis Taylor potted the last pink and he's walking around the table, simply says, the final frame, the final black. Yeah, it's a terrific line, I agree. He then says, uh, you already mentioned his no after Davis missed the thin black. But that is also a classic. Has more ever been said with just one word? Well, it's a good point. I mean, I think, I, I, I can't conceive of that being done today. You know, it, the, the tendency to elaborate, I suppose, will be too, you know, be too tempting. But Ted was a less is more kind of, kind of chap. And that no, I mean, like you say, there's more meaning in that no than, you know, probably anything that's ever been said on commentary. Because everyone exact, knew ex the exact sort of feeling he had, the concern, the surprise, you know, the the disbelief. It's all there in that one word, just two letters. You never said more, you're quite right. Now, we always like to hear from people who've been to events. And Dan 
has been to the UK qualifiers at the Morningside Arena in Leicester. So let's hear from Dan. He says, great podcast and commentary. Keep it up. I know you said you don't get many emails, but lots of us snooker fans love the podcast. Well, it's not quite true, Dan. I get a few, you know, and we, we try to read them all out. But uh, anyway, he says, I recently decided to spend a day at the UK qualifiers at the Morningside Arena in Leicester. Advanced trains and a day ticket for just under 20 quid. Great value. I was expecting one of the leisure centre-style venues, but was pleasantly surprised. It took ages to find the entrance due to lack of directions and a sign the size of a postage stamp, but we can gloss over that. You're right about that, actually, Dan. It's not the easiest to find. It's down as it's called Memory Lane. I mean, you literally take a trip down Memory Lane to get there. It could be better, better signposted, I agree. Anyway, he says, There was no basketball going on in the background or general sports centre noise. The toilet facilities were good. The stands were decent, comfortable seating and close to the tables. Six tiers for the main tables and three tiers for the back tables. On this note, I think World Snooker must now use their own seating. The World Qualifiers used to have terrible regular chairs on wooden gym block seating for the back tables. Last year, they changed to less tables and two proper stands. I took my own refreshments and a good job, as these were very much tuck shop style, and I'm not paying £2.50 for the delights of a machine coffee. Anyway, I sat on the back row of the second set of tables for the afternoon session and saw two deciders and a close 6-4 on the tables in my view. Moving to the Judgment Day style system for the UKs has really worked well and restored some of the prestige. Uh, the game should all be two session again, in my opinion, but I guess you can't have everything. I recommend going to these qualifiers as you get great value action. I openly criticise some of the things Will Snooker do, and they clearly take a budget approach to qualifiers, but I felt they were very well done in this case. When the main stages come round, you get all the quality TV coverage and camera angles and can always stay at home. Well, thank you, Dan, and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the trip there. Yes, I mean, I think we've sort of heard in the past that not all qualifiers are accessible to the public, but quite often when they are, not many people go. I mean, there weren't that many people there. Um, There were some hardy souls who made the trip, Um, but they don't seem to be a massive draw, which is a shame, actually, because you get to see a lot of different players, Um, you know, eight tables there, uh, four on the last two days. And, you, you know, you get to sort of be part of the action before it kind of cranks up in York. You get to see how the players got through. So qualifiers are, are always kind of interesting to go to. And they are cheap, as you said. Um, but, uh, you know, there are costs involved in obviously allowing the public in. But I'm glad you enjoyed your trip. Now, Gavin Power has written uh, a very interesting email here, which I'm going to read out. He says, I've been a snooker fan since the age of seven beginning with Dennis Taylor's World Championship triumph, fully indulging in the sport and its epic Henry V. White rivalry unfolding during throughout the 1990s and now visiting live matches when time permits. My first live snooker was at, Go- was at Goff's, so it was nice to learn a little bit more from your podcast as to the drawbacks of the venue for snooker, including ceiling heights and the resulting impact of the appearance of a long table on television screens. There's been much talk recently about who the greatest ever player is, Henry or O'Sullivan with perhaps Davis or John Higgins appearing in third place. It got me thinking about how you truly measure greatness. I think the fairest measurement may be a ranking of snooker players throughout the history of the game based upon some essential criteria. Okay, so this is Gavin's criteria. Number one, evaluating them against each other when their form sees them play at their peak, imagining them battling in a best of 19. (coughs) Best of 19 seems to be a fair duration of frames to enable the better player to emerge victorious. It's certainly the minimum starting point. Others may argue best of 25, 31, 33 or 35 will be fairer. But once that is agreed, then the subjective assessment can begin. Okay, so we've got the groundwork laid out. He says, number two, the ranking assumes matches are played under a real pressure scenario. This ensures players are evaluated based uh, not only upon their talent, but also their temperament under pressure. So my top 32 of all time looks like this. I'm going to read it out here. He says, I would love to know your thoughts before I begin 
players that helped shape the game in previous generations have not always made the cut because I feel the standard of play in the last few decades has increased relatively significantly. Now, this is Gavin's order, okay? I've nothing to do with anyone else. Gavin has come up with this. He has uh, looked at the matches in terms of uh, the, uh, the, as he says, the, the, the meaningfulness of them, the pressure they were under, and he's... Uh, He's looked at um, length of matches and he's come up with this and this is his list and I'm going to read it out from, uh, we've got plenty of time this week, so from 32 down, these are the best 32 players ever, starting at 32. This is like Alan Fluff Freeman on top of the pops. <laughs> there's, a, there's one for the teenagers. Okay, so number 32, Karen Wilson. Number 31, Mark Allen. Number 30, Alan McManus. 29, Terry Griffiths. 28, Barry Hawkins. 27, Doug Mountjoy. 26, Graham Dot. 25, Matthew Stevens. 24, Stuart Bingham. 23, Luca Brassell. 22, Cliff Thorburn. 21, Peter Ebden. 20, Dennis Taylor. 19, John Spencer. 18, Ken Doherty. 17, Paul Hunter. 16, Joe Johnson. 15, Alex Higgins. 14, Neil Folds. 13, Ray Ridden. 12, Neil Robertson. 11, Sean Murphy. And now we move into the top ten. This is Gavin Powers' list, which he's worked out through his own criteria, <laughs> which, which uh, he's explained already. So this is the top ten in reverse order, OK? Let's see if your favourites are in here. Number ten, John Parrott. Number nine, Ding Jun Wee. Number eight, Mark Williams. Number seven, Jimmy White. Number six, Steve Davis. Into the top five. Number five, Judd Trump. Number four... Mark Selby, so now we have the top three, okay, I think we know who they are, but it's like the Christmas number one, this isn't it, waiting for the Christmas number one, as we used to do when records meant anything, who is going to be in the top three in which order, well, here's the answer, number three, John Higgins, number two, if I could afford a drum roll, I'll give you one, number two, according to Gavin, is Ronnie O'Sullivan, and number one is Stephen Hendrick, now there'll be people that out there who've made it this far in the podcast, saying, don't be so ridiculous. But that's what he's come up with based on his own criteria. And it may seem pointless to you, but he's done it. And good luck to him. I, I mean, there's some interesting ones there. I mean, Neil Folds would be happy with 14th, I think. Um, Neil Robertson out of the top 10. Maybe controversial. Uh, John Parrott is an interesting one there. He, he was a far better player than I think people remember. I mean, he won the World Championship in the midst of... Henry Davis White, you know, that era, um, and won a lot of sort of non-British ranking events, UK chairman as well, of course. But anyway, that's, that's Gavin's list, and if anyone else has, wants to come up, I'm, I'm all for people coming up with their own, I don't like to say bogus criteria, but their own criteria for ranking players, please do, uh, whatever you want to come up with. It doesn't have to be a top 32, maybe a top 10, be more manageable. Uh, but whatever criteria you have for, for ranking the greatest players, maybe you just like the, the cut of their hair or, you know, or, or their accent. Whatever it is, we'll take anything. <laughs> That's the motto of this podcast. We'll take anything. Brian Murray writes from Dublin. He says, I wanted to thank you for the podcast. Really entertaining. Thank you, Brian. I just wanted to ask you if you'd heard this question. How is it possible to get a break of eight and in that break pop four yellows? Well, Brian kindly answers it. He says, you and I are playing a frame. One red left and you foul. I approach the table. I'm snookered on the last red and have a free ball. I take the yellow as my free ball. That's one yellow and one point. The yellow gets respotted. I then pop the yellow as my colour. Two yellows and three points. I then pop the last red. Four points. Now, I then pop the yellow as my colour. So that's three yellows and six points. And then I start the colours in sequence. I pop the yellow. That's four yellows and eight points. I then miss the green and leave the table. 
Sorry for the pointless trivia. Well, there we are. If any, if any, you know, if that comes up in, you know, I'm not going to come in in Mastermind or one of those programs, but if it comes up in a quiz, people know the answer now. He says, I recently was watching Barry Hawkins against Judd Trump. They're both left-handed. But notice when they use the rest, they both switch to their right hand. Do you, why do they, why do you think they switch to their non-dominant hand for the rest shot, which is a harder shot? Do you know of any other players who do the same? Uh, I, I don't, I've never really understood that, to be honest. Um, if anyone can shed any, any light on that, it's just something that they do. Um, so, I don't know is the answer. Uh, a lot of left-handed players these days, actually. But, um, anyway. We'll move on. Uh, Sam Hall writes, uh, Thank you for your magnificent podcast, which brings great cheer to so many of us. Well, wait, wait till you listen to this episode, Sam. Anyway, he says, uh, Regarding the snooker triple wish list suggested by Mark and John, here are my three. So Mark and John, they came up with this last week. And uh, Sam has answered the call. He says, Number one, the leadership of World Snooker Tour becomes as hungry, ambitious and courageous as the leading professionals on the tour. Well, I'm sure, it's not for me to answer for them, but I'm sure they would argue they already are. Um, <laughs> Sam, I mean, what I would say is, um, certainly the, the, the World Snooker staff, I mean, the, the, the hours this week have been absolutely brutal. Um, they're long days, you know, they don't just walk, don't walk in at five to one. A lot of late finishes, so uh, people have been working hard, despite, as I say, the illness that's been sort of generally, the bug that's been going around. Anyway, number two, Says streaming snooker is a perfect game for screens. Imagine a hundred million people paying ten pounds a year to view snooker on their devices. That's a cool billion in revenue. Negotiate the broadcast rights so WST can stream events outside the broadcast territories of the BBC, Eurosport, ITV, etc. Well, I mean, again, just to answer that, I mean, in China they do have an arrangement like that. Um, they have uh, streaming rights in China. Uh, to all the events, and uh, of course Matchroom Live, I mean, we've not heard necessarily totally complimentary things about that service, but it is gen- generally available on there. There's, there's a lot of different contracts, broadcast contracts, streaming contracts, uh, whether it could be as simple as just having one, like you say, and everyone pays to that one, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it may be a bit more complicated than that, but anyway, this is a wish list. Uh, and number three, snooker seed and the entire back catalogue is digitised and placed online by an enterprising budding journalist and the podcast continues forever. <laughs> well, forever's a long time, of course. But anyway, thank you for that. And anyone else with uh, with a similar uh, ideas, do let us know. Uh, Frankie writes, I was watching the Williams-Ding match. Now, this was last, just last night, so he's hot off the press. So I was watching the Williams-Ding match, but unfortunately kept nodding off. But was woken by your excited... Uh, Dulcet tones in frame eight. There I was thinking there was a possible one for seven on, but then I realised your enthusiastic chortles of commentary were about the possibility of a new record of the highest combined score in a frame, which duly occurred. I think Angles McManus was rather less impressed with that moment in snooker history. I wonder if that momentous record will ever be beaten. I'm grateful to your energetic excitement realising history was about to be made that I woke up to witness this great yet probable meaningless record. Well, thank you, Frankie. I mean, no, Alan was very uh, engaged with it. Um, Ding scored 94 points and lost the frame Which is extraordinary really Most ever scored in a, in a frame that, you, that a player's lost uh, 194 No, 196 points were scored uh, So that beat the old record Rather grisly frame between Dominic Dale and Peter Lyons In an old wishy classic qualifier That was 192 So that was the record That stood for 11 years So, you know, it, it took a while to, to beat I'm not sure Mark Williams necessarily wanted that record but the fact is he's got it and it was uh, I mean obviously there were a lot of fouls but the reason for that was a lot of good safety play um, a lot of snookers they're on the green about half an hour which is one of those frames 63 minutes 
And this is the thing, it was very engaging and exciting, and people who, you know, had all this nonsense about getting rid of snookers and all that, and, you know, there seem to be players out there who just want to make it easier for themselves, want to make the game easier. It's not supposed to be easy. Um, if you want to make it easy, take ten reds off the table, you know, <laughs> or, or, or just have fewer colours and, and just less to do generally. It's supposed to be hard, it is hard, and if you're really good at it, the rewards are there. And that, and that frame was uh, very exciting, even though it was long and drawn out at times, it was high quality and ultimately historic, as you say. Joe Richards, uh, I'm not sure if we can call this a, th- a, th- a thunderous p- polemic, but well, let, let's see what you think. So I just wanted to make a point regarding the seeding format for the UK and other tournaments being illogical. However, ironically, the quarterfinal lineups had it, were excellent, so it has worked out quite well, with Selby Trump and Williams digging in one half and O'Sullivan in the other half. There's a potential for a good final if O'Sullivan can find some form at at least one blockbuster semi on, on the top of two blockbuster quarters. Having the world champion as number two seed for the UK is an odd one. Being number one in the world and being number three seed seems a strange one for me. I've always been against the defending champion being the number one seed also, as it often skews the draw if the defending champion is out of form. Ronnie and Trump should be seeded one and two based on the world rankings. Makes a lot more logical sense to me. Yes, Alan had a fantastic season early part of last year and Brussel had a great world championship, but no way are they the two form players at the moment. Luckily, uh, with them not getting knocked out, it hasn't skewed the balance of the draw too much, with Trump and O'Sullivan being seeded three and four. Uh, but it still isn't going to help future draws pan out in the logical way. Of course, Alan was knocked out uh, early on in round one. But anyway, he says, you want the top four in the rankings, in theory, to have the ability to meet in the semis. I don't buy the argument you'll get a lot of repetition with the draws. Naturally, there's going to be other good players that beat the top four. But draws... Uh, will become less skewed if they seed every ranking tournament based on world rankings. Obviously, the ITV series being based on the one-year ranking is effectively a similar process, so I get that will be different, which is fine, as the draws will then be based on the current informed players. So draws naturally aren't skewed in that format. No other professional sport would have such a strange seeding format. Giving someone a number one seeding based on their performance one year ago is bizarre. Their form could have fallen off a cliff. <coughs> well, <coughs> thank you, Joe. This is niche stuff, which, of course, is exactly what we want. Um... There's two issues here, I suppose. One is, as you say, the defending champion being the number one seed, and the other is the world champion being seeded two automatically for every event. And in fact, for new events, I think I think the world champion would be seeded one. But anyway, the, the reason, I mean, that's that's been there a long time. Now, I can't swear that it happened after Joe Johnson won in 86, but obviously, you know, the world champion used to basically be the world number one or very close to it. When you started to have the odd shot winner, of course, they wanted to make sure... Being world champion is such a prestigious thing within the sport. You wanted to make sure that the world champion was at the tournaments and, and actually could, you know, play their full part um, by being seeded for, for events. It came into sharper focus, I guess, when Sean Murphy won. He didn't actually get in the top 16, but he was put in as the number two seed, which knocked Ian McCulloch out. He was, seeded, he was actually world number 16, but he was knocked down to 17 because Murphy came in to that top 16 seeding bracket. And I think it is desirable to have the world champion, you know, making sure they are seeded at tournaments. Most of the time it would happen anyway. Uh, but every so often a shock winner comes through. It's a bit different now with a half a million points. It's hard hard not to be in the top 16. But that's a long-standing convention that the world champion will be seeded second. Uh, personally, I don't mind it because I think it does sort of illustrate the prestige of the world championship. In terms of seeding the defending champion as number one, I mean, that's a perk of winning it. I suppose you, it's become tradition now in a lot of tournaments that you will then start off 
the following year. Um, it's not impossible, I suppose, to win a tournament and not be in the top 16 the following year. I mean, I think actually Gary Wilson is in that exact position this year at the Scottish Open. Now, should Gary Wilson, having won the tournament last year, have gone to qualify for the Scottish Open this year, maybe not even made it? Not so sure about that. I think actually it probably is right that he's seeded number one. Um, there's so many tournaments now and so many sort of variations. It, it's not true to say that, I mean, the top 16, it, okay, the top four are seeded, but the, the rest of them are kind of jumbled up. So it's not like every event is going to be 1v16. That doesn't actually happen. Um, so you do get a variance of draws. So you made your point very clearly. I have to say it doesn't bother me that much. But, you know, you, you've, you've laid out the reasons you don't like it, and that's fair enough. Matt Owen, uh, great work on Judgment Day recently. Yourself and Stephen Hallworth were great company during what was some really exciting snooker. Well, thank you. We enjoyed it. Stephen was excellent. Really uh, took to it well. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, we had a good time there. It was uh, very exciting. So there's a couple of quick questions for you, if I may. It seems a shame the Eurosport studio team are not in situ for the early round of the Home Nations tournaments. Will this be a permanent arrangement, do you think? I realise these things are motivated by money and you may not know yourself, but I thought I would ask just in case you did. The studio team do add a sense of occasion to the broadcast, so it would be great to see them there throughout the tournaments. Uh, well, I think the, one of the issues at the Home Nations actually is just there's so many matches to get through. Um, so much snooker to show that, uh, you know, sometimes maybe that, that full studio sort of presence isn't always necessary. They're there from the Friday onwards um, now. But Alan McManus is still there doing very good uh, analysis on the touchscreen and interviewing all the winners as well. So it's still, you still get that. And I, and I think um, in Scotland, he, as from what I hear, there may be someone else involved as well who everyone will know. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, these things evolve, but... Um, that the, the full studio hasn't actually been got rid of. It's just it'd be there later in the week now. Um, number two, further to your podcast with John Skilbeck talking about his book Goody Two Shoes. I believe it was due for publication a while ago. I can't seem to track it down. Do you know if it's been held up at all? I, I, I'm as far as I'm aware, it hasn't come out yet. Um, I, maybe I should have asked John before answering this question, but I, I will see if I can find out. But uh, keep watching the skies. I, I, last I heard, he was sort of just uh, he was, the sort of final edits were being done. So hopefully very soon that will be out. And number three, how's your own book coming along? Well, uh, news on that next year. So we'll we'll leave off for, for now. But um, yeah, I, I yeah, did a few more interviews for it. And uh, believe me, you'll hear all about it in due course. Dermot writes, a quick question with the prize money for the double maximum in Triple Crown events. Well, Snooker Tour specified a maximum as either 147 or 155. Uh is it to be taken any break between 147 and 155 does not qualify as a maximum? Uh, yeah, that is exactly right. It has to be the maximum available. So a 148 with a free ball, the maximum available actually would be 155. So there's two maximums in snooker, the 147 and 155. The 147, though, has to be 15 reds, 15 blacks, and the colours. It can't be with a, free, a 16 red break that is not the maximum that's available. So maximum is 147 or 155. Uh, that has always been the case, but it, it, it takes some explaining because one day we'll probably have a 147 that isn't a maximum and then, you know, the sky will fall in, won't it? Joe in Hungary, long-time listener, first-time emailer, thanks for the great podcast and all you do for snooker. Well, thank you, Joe. 
My question is, do the female players have the same WST contract as the male players? If so, how are they able to play in the UK Championship Qualifier and the Eden Women's Masters concurrently? I'm not for one minute comparing the Masters to the Macau exhibition, but my confusion comes from the fact that one's a WST event, the UK Championship, and one isn't. So how's it different? This email is being sent on Saturday, the day one of the qualifiers. So this may even be a moot point, as Mink and Company may not even enter the Women's Masters. I saw them on the live score fixtures and it piqued my interest. I vaguely remember WST releasing a statement regarding Ronnie and a Shanghai exhibition at the same time as the Northern Ireland Open qualifiers. Any information you can give would be great. Um, I guess it is slightly different because <laughs> there is an established women's circuit that is affiliated to the World Snooker Tour because it's a feeder tour for it. So they'll sign the same contract, yes, but they're, they're, they're playing... The, the women's circuit is a tour that gets you on to the World Snooker Tour. Um... It's not seen as being in competition to it. It's seen as being uh, complementary to it. Uh, these are all sort of nuanced things. I noticed that on, on the Macau, there's now two Macau Masters <laughs> basically being played the same week. Both essentially meaningless affairs, really. I mean, no one's going to remember anything about them, really. They're just paydays for the players. Good luck to the players. It's a nice, nice Christmas trip to a lovely part of the world. They'll get handsomely put up and paid and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, it's... it's they, they, they'll be called sort of tournaments, but they're just exhibitions. Um, and thankfully, common sense did prevail in terms of moving it to a time when there wasn't a, another event on. Um, Mark Allen did quite an in- interesting interview with the BBC, actually, that was shown this afternoon as I as I record this. He sat down with Will Snooker Tour this week, and he said for four hours and, and, and had his solicitor there and spoke to... The, I think it was the board of the World Snooker Tour or, or members of them, representatives of them and a lot of the issues were gone through and he said he you know, there were some things he, he wished there was movement on but there are other things that he took on board and maybe hadn't thought of and that's exactly what needs to happen. Players, he took the time to go and, and they took the time to speak to him, he took the time to speak to them, that's how these things get resolved by people actually talking to each other in rooms not sniping at each other on Twitter or, or X as we have to call it now um because that's what it's called. And that seems to me eminently sensible that that that's how these things are resolved. It doesn't mean the players will always come out of it happy and maybe Will Snooker won't always come out of it happy. But but fair play to Mark. He took the time to go and speak to them. He raised the issues he wanted to raise. They made the points they wanted to raise. And that's how you get some sort of, you know, coming together, I suppose, um, and some sort of compromise. It doesn't necessarily change the, the basic facts of the matter, but... That is a, a more productive way of doing things, for sure. Hiten writes, Hope you're well, love the podcast. Thank you, Hiten. He says, I've been watching the Champion of Champions and noticed on a few occasions you were commentating with Stephen Hendry. I wanted to ask, what, what's it like commentating alongside Hendry? Does he bring any added pressure to due to his status or is he just another colleague to work with? Well, thank you. Well, it's an interesting one. I mean, obviously, Stephen Hendry, I mean, he's just been voted number one on, on, that, on that list we heard earlier. But um, he's, you know, a legend of the sport. He's someone who I total respect for as a player. His achievements were pretty incredible and some of them un- unparalleled. You know, the dominance he had. He won the Masters five years running. He won the UK Championship three years running. He won the World Championship five years running and all the rest of it. Incredible. Um, but he's a very generous uh, person to work with. He doesn't... He doesn't sort of put himself above anyone else on, on the team at all, you know, and let's be honest, he is. I mean, he's Stephen Hendry, but he doesn't act that way. He mucks in, he does his share, and in commentary, very easy to work with, and a pleasure, actually. I mean, a great high point for me last year was at the British Open, 
in Milton Keynes, Mark Selby made that maximum, which included the treble on the red, which I commentated on with Stephen. That was special because, you know, he sat next to someone who's made so many famous 147s himself and was so engaged in watching Mark Selby do it. Um, so it's not extra pressure. No, I would say it, it's, um, it's something to look forward to, isn't it? You know, because you're there with somebody who absolutely understands what's happening and can explain what it feels like to be someone who's done all that himself. And, you know, it's, it's interesting now, Stephen's sort of um, trajectory is almost, you could, I think you could argue poss- possibly the leading broadcaster in the game now because not only does he do his commentary and punditry, he does his Q-Tips channel and he does the World Snooker Tour podcast and just recently actually interviewed Steve Dawson which I thought would be interesting to mention because I did say on here a few weeks ago World Snooker Tour should should record their own interview with Steve Dawson and sure enough that's what happened and it's it was Stephen who did it and Steve Dawson is the chairman of World Snooker Tour by the way and it, it, there's been criticism Sean Murphy and others have said we don't hear enough of him He's supposed to be the sort of front man for the sport. We don't hear him. So there was an attempt to rectify that. Stephen did a good job, actually, because he did ask him direct questions. It wasn't all sort of softball stuff by any means. And, you know, he, he, he attempted to get some some answers. And I thought the most interesting part, actually, Steve Dawson actually was at, Stephen asked him, what you know, what are your sort of aims for the next few years? And Steve Dawson identified four areas that they're going to be looking at. Um... You know, as priorities. So, number one, prize money of 20 million. Number two, a broader range of international events, i.e. more different territories, not just sort of concentrated in particular territories. Number three, better engagement with fans. And number four, creating venues with better atmospheres. So these are very distinct and clear aims, and they're just on, on each of them in turn. I mean, they're all, you know, obviously admirable aims, I guess there, was, there wasn't much sort of meat on the bones about how it's going to happen. I mean, how does prize money go up to 20 million? I suppose it, it's a sort of, it's a, a question of managing the business, uh, 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 but obviously attracting new revenue streams will help bring up the prize. But at the moment, it's something like 14 million. Um, so, you know, there's it, still a little way to go, but that's, you know, a fine ambition to have. Uh, and I'm sure players will be delighted to hear that that is an ambition. Uh, of WST. Number two, broader range of international events, more territories. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, what, what, where exactly that strategy leads in terms of how, how do you get a tournament on in? Uh, let's just pick a country out the, out the blue. Uh, Italy. Okay. Well, you need contacts in Italy. You need promoters. You need sponsors. It's not as easy as just pointing at a map and saying, we'll go there. I've said this many times before. Tournaments cost a lot of money to put on. Uh, but if there are, you know, interested broadcasters, uh, it's a good, it's a good idea to try and spread the, the, the gospel as far as possible. And, and some of the criticism has been that, okay, we're strong in Britain, we're strong in China, we're strong in Germany. What about everywhere else? And that's fine for people to, to think that. I'll come back to number three in a moment. Number four, creating venues with better atmospheres. I think that is very important. I notice at the Tour Championship now they're going to have corporate hospitality, which is good. They're making a proper effort to build that Tour Championship up as being a major event. It's at Manchester Central, you know, good venue, and that'll be a, a that'll be a good pre-World Championship tournament. I think top twelve in the world this season, and of course it's um, before it's the two days of the mixed doubles as well, which is something different. I think we need to try. I mean, the, the UK Championship 
is fantastic. The set is probably the best set I've ever seen. Um, it's modern, dynamic. The venue's been really put, uh, decked up nicely. Backstage is good. The Q zone. They've got hospitality. So they've done a great job with the UK Championship. The challenge is then to go to events that are less established. I've said this before, but it bears repeating because it's basically what Steve Dawson was saying. Go to events that are less established, put them in better venues with more going on at those, in those venues. So they're better value for money for people and the events themselves become more prestigious and and more established as well. So we're not moving venues and we're not moving around. We actually find somewhere that's good. We throw a lot of love and money at it. We build it up and we try and make it into something that is special. And that's what everybody wants. The engagement with fans, I think that is in some ways the most important one actually because, you know, we get a lot of emails uh, to this podcast and a lot of them are very complimentary about visiting tournaments but a lot of them actually do list things that they want improved and it'd be nice to think that people um, could listen. Now, one, th- one way they did listen, we had an email um, to the podcast a few weeks ago from Lars from Canada who was coming over, a 30-hour uh, visit. Now, hopefully I'm actually going to be meeting him myself later so I'll let you know how that goes in the next podcast. Um, but Lars... Travelled over on his own to watch the snooker for the first time. He was hoping to see Mark Selby win the tournament, which is not going to happen now. But World Snooker Tour, he got tickets for every day, I think from Wednesday, apart from today, apart from Saturday. And I was chatting with them and I said, look, you know, any chance you maybe come all this way if, if there is a ticket. And they absolutely sorted him out, which was brilliant. And they did an interview with him on Instagram. And they, you know, made a fuss of him. And actually Rachel Casey interviewed him on Eurosport. So what a, a great you know, thing to do. Uh, that's only one person, but the point is, snooker fans have all got, you know, um, their own sort of uh, reasons for coming and their own stories, and it'd be nice to hear more of them and actually, as I've said before, push them further to the sort of front line of the sport rather than there's been a feeling for a while that they're kind of at arm's length, and I think if you can shorten that journey and bring them more to the fore, that's great. So I'd like to hear more from fans during events and you're telling them because hopefully it's true that they're part of the event and not just here to watch it they're actually part of the event and certainly the atmosphere obviously that's been so great in York this week that is created by the fans so yeah so I, I, they were Steve Dawson's um, four sort of uh, you know um, priorities and we'll obviously monitor how how they go it's clear he's not that comfortable doing interviews but that's because he's been you know in the background of, of Matchroom for, for 40 years, Barry Hearn has always been the mouthpiece there and a very effective and talented one, an engaging one, an enthusiastic one. Um, if you ever speak to, and I do, people at Matchroom, people at World Snooker Tour, they all think the world of Steve Dawson. They say he's very, very good uh, at what he does. Obviously, stepping into that spotlight role, spokesman role, he's not easy for everybody. So, but put it this way, there's been a lot of people in, in the past who've talked a good game who have not actually followed it up. I'd rather have someone who actually is effective, who maybe needs to possibly learn a little bit more about how to do media interviews. The more he does, the more assured he'll be. But anyway, it was an interesting watch and it's on the World Snooker Tour YouTube channel and Stephen Hendry, as I say, did a good job with that. Uh, anyway, that's it. So it's a first and probably last ever Saturday edition. Um, Thanks for all the emails. If I've not read yours out, it's probably just because I mislaid them. Uh, nothing more than that. But anyway, we'll be back at some point. Uh, the shootout, of course, is coming up next week. And then it's the Scottish Open. 
In the meantime, enjoy the UK Championship final. It promises to be a great occasion. And uh, do keep the emails coming in. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But for now, from York, as we always say, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.